Today on Something You Should Know, why does your dentist ask you questions when you can't answer because there's sharp instruments in your mouth? There's actually a reason. Plus, it's Valentine's week. So what's the very best way to find someone to love and how do you make it last? The later you marry, the more likely you are to remain married. And if you marry the right person, we've been able to prove in the brain you can remain in love and happy long term. Then, why do retailers still price things like $59.99? Do they still think we don't get it? And how do you tap into your own creativity? You first have to understand your personal creative process. If I have a motto that describes mine, mine is uh, look for the second right answer. I think most of the problems and issues we deal with in life have a lot of right answers. But if you stop with the first right answer you find, all the good alternatives will uh, atrophy. All this today on Something You Should Know. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. So I went to the dentist the other day to get my teeth cleaned. I love, I love getting my teeth cleaned. I like that feeling afterwards. You know, you don't want to eat anything because you, you don't want to get food on your teeth. It feels so clean. But anyway, so I'm sitting there in the dentist chair and thinking of things and coming up with questions of why things are the way they are in the dentist's office and did a little research. And, and I bet you've asked yourself these questions too, so let me share them with you. Why does the dentist ask me questions when I can't really talk back? And the reason they do that is primarily as a distraction. So it gives you something to think about so you're not thinking about every little poke and prod in your mouth. And they also get pretty good at understanding you, even though... (laughs) What is that smell? Have you noticed that all dentist's office tend to smell the same? It turns out to be a mixture of latex gloves and fluoride gel that creates that very telltale smell. Is there a fish tank in your dentist's office? There's a good chance there is. There is in my dentist's office. And... That's supposed to relieve anxiety in patients. For a long time, a lot of studies have shown that people who look at fish swimming in an aquarium kind of lowers their heart rate and calms them down. Do they deliberately hide all the dental instruments? Well, it turns out they do, especially from kids. Seeing sharp, pointy things and needles that are about to go in your mouth really doesn't do anybody any good. Is everything really sterile in the dentist's office. Haven't you wondered, like, what if they forgot to clean that thing after the last guy? Well, they're pretty good at that. Chances are everything is sterile, except maybe the bib clips that they attach the bib to you. A study did find that they're often not cleaned frequently and can contain bacteria, so you probably want to avoid touching them. And that is something you should know. With the spotlight on Valentine's Day and romance this time of year, I thought it would be interesting to take a look at how romance has changed, how people meet, where they meet, who asks who out, and maybe more importantly, how do these changes influence the long-term success of relationships, if at all? For example, are you more likely to find a well-suited match from an online dating service because they have all these algorithms that are supposedly better at pairing people up? For many years, Helen Fisher has been exploring and conducting research about romantic love, 
She's kind of a love anthropologist, and, and she looks at how it all works and why it sometimes doesn't work. She is a consultant for Match.com, and she also has a book that was first published in 1992 and is now revised and updated called Anatomy of Love, A Natural History of Mating, Marriage, and Why We Stray. Hi, Helen. So right off the bat here, how and where are people looking for love, and where, where are they meeting people today? Um, I do an annual study called Singles in America. We poll the American single population, so it's a representative sample based on the U.S. Census. And as it turns out today, uh, 6% of singles meet in a bar. That's gone. We meet our friends in a bar now. Not, not, we're not going to pick people up. About 25% of singles meet somebody through a friend, and about 40% of singles have met their last first date um, on the Internet. So there's no question about it that we're spending, we're using technology to, to find love. And in many respects, I'm, I'm, I'm very in favor of it. But it does seem that a lot of the rules of dating and romance have changed, that, that there was a time when, you know, a, a woman would never ask out a man. Uh, there was a time when... It was just assumed that a man would pay for everything, and now that's not necessarily going to be the case. So, so talk about that. Talk about some of the changes in the rules, things that people do today that if you did them some years ago, people would say, you know, what? You did what? <laughs> in these studies with Match.com, 91% of men that I've surveyed, I've got data now on 35,000 singles, not on Match, but regular people, 91% of men are perfectly willing to have a woman invite them out, and women won't do it. Only about 24% of women have ever asked, asked a man out. So it's women that are, oddly enough, holding on to more traditional um, values that, than men are. Why do you think that is? You know, throughout the animal kingdom, it's often males that make the first clear move. I mean, women actually make a lot of first moves. I mean, we, we flirt and we bat our eyes and we smile and we ask questions and we get carefully dressed and put makeup on. And so we make ourselves available. But there's something called initiative transfer. And at some point, the male knows his job. And that is to say, you know, would you like to go out? Or uh, w would you like to see a movie? Or would you like to have a hot dog? Or would you like to take a walk in the park? It's called initiative transfer. And and women like to know that the man is interested. I mean, the man's got the harder job. It's the woman that can do the rejecting or the accepting. It's the man that has to put himself out there and express it. Uh, but women still want men to pay the bill probably for an ancient reason. For millions of years, women needed to, a partner to help them raise their babies. And they wanted a partner who could provide and protect. And that's basic to women. They want a man who can provide. They want a man with some resources. And as a result, it's men that are killing themselves at work, not women. But isn't that changing with women in the workplace and they're making their own money and having their own resources? I did a study of this. Eighty percent of men are um, perfectly uh, comfortable dating a woman who has more money, who makes more money than they do, has a considerably higher education than they do, uh, and is considerably more influential. Women are the picky sex for good Darwinian evolutionary reasons. I mean, for millions of years, women had to carry the baby for nine months. Uh, childbirth has always been a dangerous uh, experience, and around the world, women spend the vast amount of, of the first four years of, of raising a child. 
uh, men spend their time getting to work to provide for the house and the family, et cetera, but it's women who are doing the daily job of, of diaper changing, et cetera. So, so women are the picky sex. Every single time I do this Match.com study, I see the same thing, that uh, you know, women are less likely to go out with somebody from a different religion, less likely to go out with somebody of a different ethnic group, less likely to go out with somebody of a different political um, orientation, et cetera. It's men who are the... Um, the less picky sex. Well, I've I've heard men talk about this. I don't know if women talk about this, but you know the sense that you know women want to be able to ask men out and they want to have you know equal say in the relationship, but they want the man to pay. Right. I guess it's more than just the money. Um, they want the expression that this guy's going to be powerful and going to keep on helping them raise their children. So but I do think that, um, you know, I give a lot of speeches, too. I wrote a book called The First Sex, The Natural Talents of Women and How They're Changing the World. And they are. They're really bringing a great many of very fine skills into the job market. Um, so I give a lot of speeches on that subject. And I'm, it's often to very high-power women in high-power companies who are trying to understand gender differences so that they can do better in the office. And I find very regularly that a very high-power woman will marry a man who's a violinist or a psychiatrist or, or uh, teaches uh, childhood education in some way, people who don't actually make uh, very much money. And they're marrying them for different reasons. They're saying, I got the money, and but I'm going to need you to do thus, 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 and thus. So as women's roles are expanding, men's roles are expanding too. They no longer have to be the main financial winner. And as a matter of fact, um, um, in, in America today, among people who are married and the woman works, about um, uh, one-third of those, uh, or more, I think, these days, make more money than their husbands do. And I ask these women, how do you handle it? I mean, how do you handle this, um, you making more money? And some of them say, well, I just give them my credit card, or we have a shared bank account, or or um, I knew this when I was going into it. We worked on this before we married. So people, no question about it that this powerful trend of women piling into the job market is changing relationships just as technology is enabling us to court differently. But basically, we will just continue doing it. You know, I mean, I put people in brain scanners and study the brain circuitry of romantic love, and, and this brain system is not going to die. I mean, it, it lies down in brain regions linked with drive, with focus, with motivation, with energy, with obsession. In this case, the motivation to win life's greatest prize, a mating partner. So uh, romance isn't going to die. Uh, love isn't going to die. We're just um, approaching it differently. I'm speaking with Helen Fisher. She's author of the book Anatomy of Love, A Natural History of Mating, Marriage, and Why We Stray. So, Helen, when, when you look at relationships from 10,000 feet, when you look at the whole landscape, what are some of the, if any, what are some of the big changes you see? What, what, what I think we're really doing is extending the pre-commitment stage. You know, where marriage used to be the beginning of a relationship, now it's the finale. We have this long period, often from, you know, about age 18 to almost age 30, in which we're trying out people and we're having one-night stands and we're having the friends with benefits and we're living with somebody long-term. It's the extension of the pre-commitment stage is what's going on. And with that, people are learning about themselves. They're learning about handling relationships. They're getting rid of the things they don't want so that by the time they walk down the aisle, they know what they got. 
They know they want what they got, and they think they can keep what they've got. So, um, in fact, I'm so positive about this now that uh, um, I did a study of 1,100 married people to see whether, well, you know, if you're marrying much later, uh, are you going to have a more stable marriage? And so I, I asked 1,100 people a lot of questions about love, but one of them was, would you remarry? the person you're currently married to, and 81% said yes. So this long pre-commitment stage, what I call slow love, is enabling people to understand more about what they're looking for, what they want, how they feel, how to express themselves, and how to date and court. Um, And I think we're going to lead towards more stable marriages rather than less stable ones. And ultimately, that's what really matters. I mean, we can talk all day long about what attracts people to each other and what brings them together and that that people aren't necessarily looking for the same things that they did before and they don't necessarily date in the way they did before but the big question is how does it turn out how do, it's fine to to connect differently but how do those relationships turn out a psychologist will tell you all kinds of things about what makes a happy marriage they're all good they're all perfectly fine but this is what the brain says. I'm just trying to add what the brain says about a long-term happy marriage. And among these people, we put in the brain scanner, we gave them a lot of questionnaires, we looked at those who were in a long-term, very happy marriage, still showing activity in brain regions linked with romance, and we found activity in three brain regions. These are the three brain regions linked with a long-term happy partnership. A brain region linked with feelings of empathy for your partner, a brain region linked with controlling your own stress and your own emotions, and a brain region linked with positive illusions, the ability to overlook what you don't like about somebody and focus on what you do. So we're marrying later. I've looked at um, marriage and divorce data through the demographic yearbooks in 80 cultures. The later you marry, the more likely you are to remain married. And if you marry the right person, we've been able to prove in the brain you can remain in love and happy long term. What about the interest just in marriage? Do we see people saying, you know, I don't need marriage. I, I, I'd rather just have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I, I'm too busy to be married. Yeah, I've asked that question, too, on this match data. And something like 57% of, of singles, their real response is, why do I need marriage to prove that I love her? 67% of people who are living together long term say that they have not yet married because they are terrified of divorce. They're terrified of the economic, social, and personal fallout of divorce. So they're trying to get to know the person absolutely, totally before they tie the knot. It sounds like, you know, the desires are all kind of the same, and the end goal is pretty much the same. It's just how we get there that keeps changing. That's right. That's very well said. Absolutely. So if you, Helen Fisher, were going to go out in the dating world now, knowing what you know, how would you do it differently than, say, somebody did it 10, 20, 30 years ago? Maybe start online, because that seems to be where a lot of the action's going on. Well, uh, the first thing that I would do is tell all my friends, and have my friends tell their friends, because uh, it is nice, it's still very nice to meet people through people uh, that you know. But the bottom line is, you know, a great many people are divorcing in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, or their partner dies, and, you know, they already know everybody in their social circle. That's not going to change. They know everybody at work. They know everybody in their golf club or their bridge group or whatever they're doing. So friends aren't going to be a great deal of use. 
And then I would definitely say go on to the Internet. I've done it. Uh, I happen to have a boyfriend right now, and I did not meet him on the Internet. But uh, I've done it at times, and I met wonderful people. But you've got to get out there and meet them. The beauty of it is it's cheap, it's safe, and you can do it in the middle of the night in your pajamas. Think a little. I mean, you know, courtship is about winning. It's about winning. and You've got to put your best foot out there. It does take work. There's no question about it. But in many respects, it takes a little less work than it used to. I mean, mean, in the past, you had to go sit in a bar all night and go out every night and spend a lot of money and hope that somebody will walk by who flirts with you and then you fall in love with them. These days, uh, we can do it through the Internet. I know you're a consultant for Match.com, so so clearly you're pro-online dating. So your your answer might be a bit biased here, but but if you could take that hat off for just a moment, do you think, really, knowing what you know, do you think that dating sites in general are using, you know, algorithms and things and are really serving up people that are better qualified than people you would meet in a bar or you would meet through a friend who are just available people who happen to be in your circle. Is there really an advantage to the people you think online dating delivers? I certainly hope so. I certainly work in that industry, and I and an awful lot of other people are working very hard. Look, we can give you somebody who's the right background, right ethnic group, right educational background, same general level of good looks, same religious and social values, but you can walk into a room, and all of those people, it's the same thing. You walk into a room, and all those people have the same, you know, they're basically the same socioeconomic background, same level of intelligence, same level of good looks, and you don't fall in love with all of them. It doesn't matter where you meet somebody. Meet them at church. Meet them in a bar. Meet them at work. You know, romantic love is like a sleeping cat. It can be awakened at any minute. You are carrying around in your head one of the most powerful brain systems the human animal has ever evolved called romantic love and feelings of deep attachment to a partner. It's just, it doesn't matter how you meet them. You just have to get out there and start. So I don't think it's a, a throwing darts at a board uh, anymore. I think... Uh, it depends. I mean, I suppose if you were to stand in a bar, you got to stand in the right bar <laughs> uh, if you're going to have uh, the right kind of person uh, uh, come by. And who knows? The right kind of person might not go to that bar that night. I don't know. I, I, I just think that the Internet is hardly a crapshoot, hardly a throwing um, uh, uh, darts at a board. Uh, it is a sophisticated tool that enables you to meet a pile of new people, You've written a profile saying what you're looking for. We're trying to give you as close to that as we can, but then you've got to do the job of taking a look at that person. We can't do that for you. Yeah. Helen Fisher has been my guest. Helen is a consultant uh, for Match.com, and her book is Anatomy of Love, the Natural History of Mating, Marriage, and Why We Stray. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you, Helen. <music> Creativity and innovation. Those words get tossed around a lot. Businesses want to innovate, and that takes creative people. But what does it mean to be creative? Are are some people born that way and others not? Is there a formula for being creative? Is a creative person someone who comes up with a great idea or someone who merely recognizes one? Or is it both? 
In any event, if you are more creative, that certainly seems to give you an advantage in today's world. Roger Von Eck has been speaking and teaching the concepts of creativity for a long time, often to some of the most innovative companies in the world, including Apple, IBM, Microsoft, and many more. He wrote one of the first legendary books on how creativity works, called A Whack on the Side of the Head. And I think he'll have you thinking differently about your creativity by the time our conversation is done. Hey, Roger. So, in a nutshell, what is creativity to your way of thinking? Well, I I think you could probably, and your listeners probably could come up with their very own as well. Uh, Probably could come up with a hundred different definitions. uh, But my favorite is uh, basically looking at the same thing as everyone else and uh, thinking something different. So taking an idea, a concept, an object, and uh, putting it in a fresh uh, context, like um, I'm holding a pen in my hand, and um, it's a writing instrument, but if I say, oh, well, what other context can I put it in? It could be a pointer, a hole punch, uh, a back scratcher, an advertising medium, and so that's uh, pretty much my quick and dirty definition of uh, creative thinking. Now, I'd also add to that that uh, I think it's fairly easy to come up with uh, new ideas. Uh, I think uh, if you're going to make a difference, it's also important to um, implement the ideas, to apply the ideas. And uh, obviously not all ideas um, should be implemented, but um, you know, if you're going to be a, a creative doer as well as a creative thinker, um, it's important to think different and also try to apply the ideas if you can. Right, because everybody has a good idea. Everybody at a cocktail party will tell you about their good idea, but not everybody does anything with it. Well, that's absolutely true. Um, I have a model to create a process, a fairly simple one, that uh, people who are able to uh, generate, manage, and apply new ideas are able to adopt different mindsets in the creative process. Uh, Early on, they think like explorers. They look for ideas and information all around them. Then they think like artists, and they ask what if and why not, and they make new combinations and come up with a new idea. And then you have to think like a judge, and you say, is this idea any good? Do we have the resources to implement it? Is the timing right? And then finally, you have to get the idea into action, and that means you become a warrior, and you get rid of your excuses, and you focus your thinking, and uh, you sell the idea, and you get picked up when you get knocked down. And uh, not everybody's able to sell their ideas. Not everybody is um, uh, able to pick themselves up when they get some rejection. So... um, it's important to know what you're good at and uh, try to improve uh, where you know, the areas where you're weak. And but that, that being a judge part that you just described, isn't that difficult? Because it's hard to judge your own ideas, plus it's easy to get really wrapped up and carried away with your own ideas, even though objectively they may not be so great. Uh, that's an excellent point. I, and that's why it's important to have people you trust around to give you uh, good, honest feedback on your idea, saying, uh, this is really something. Uh, I hadn't really thought of it like that. I can see a lot of opportunities. Or to say, you know, the world's already doing that, or this is more of the same, or there are not really the resources or the technologies available to implement that. And, you know, I, I personally, you know, using the model I just gave you, I think I'm a pretty good explorer. I'm a good artist, too. I'm able to, you know, crank out new ideas. My, weak, my weakness is my judge suit, and uh, so that's where I, I, I have developed a network of people that I say, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? And I, I, I trust that. And I would say that you know, 
whoever you are, uh, if you find that you're less good as an artist, well, try to surround yourself with people who can give you um, the idea to say, well, add this or reject that or twist this a different way. And, uh, you know, I, I think a key thing of being a more effective creative thinker is trying to be aware of what your strengths and weaknesses are and then uh, play on your strengths and try to develop your weaknesses. Sure. And, and I think, and you can tell me what you think, but I think that, that some creative people may not necessarily be good at coming up, dreaming up an idea out of nothing, but they can recognize a good idea. And, and I think that's golden, to be able to tell a good idea from a bad idea. It's, it's that, like that judge thing you were just talking about. That's true. And uh, I've seen it happen with a lot of people where you can just... Uh, continually say you develop an idea and you continue to uh, spin on it and spin on it and spin on it and add things to it. And it's really, uh, it's really important to get it out and to show it to people uh, if, you, if you can. I, a rule of thumb in design is prototype early and prototype often. And uh, so you can see what's working, what's not. And you need an objective point of view to do that. But some people don't feel safe doing that. They, they feel that people are going to steal their idea or... Uh, uh, run off with it, and so on. And I, I found that's not typically the case. And it's it's better to you know to see if you can show it to people and uh, see what they think. That is something, though, that seems to stop a lot of people. They're so worried that someone's going to steal their idea that they have to keep it under wraps. And, and but by doing so, nobody sees it, and then it never goes anywhere. Uh, I think I think you make a valid point. Uh, I would encourage people, if you, if you have an idea, try to show it to colleagues, peers, uh, and say, what do you think of this? Uh, how can this help the company? Uh, how can this help uh, our, our interests here? You know, everybody's got their own creative thinking style, certain things they're better at and less good at, uh, at other things. And one thing that I'm good at is I'm, I'm taking my own ideas at a fairly early stage and just going up to random people on the street, like in a, in a mall or in a store, and just say, what do you think of this? You know, is this, does this make sense, or would, does this excite you? Does this captivate your imagination? And uh, not everybody is able to do that, but uh, uh, I, I find that useful for me to find out if I'm just doing my own juices or I have something that's, um, you know, objectively uh, uh, valuable for more than just, you know, an audience of one person, which is me. You know, there's that, that theory about brainstorming, that, you know, there are no bad ideas, that to come up with a good idea, you have to have lots of ideas. Are you a, a disciple of that thinking? I, I believe that. I believe, uh, well, you, know, you look at a professional photographer, and if he or she is shooting an important subject, they won't take just one or two uh, photos. They'll take a lot, maybe 100, maybe 200. And out of that, there may be, you know, four or five that... Uh, Will satisfy the client. You know, as, as I see it, one of the chief things that differentiates uh, creative people from lesser creative people is that uh, creative people tend to pay attention to their small ideas. They can have five or ten of these a day, and by paying attention to these, they turn them into medium-sized ideas, and by manipulating those, they turn them into something bigger. It is interesting how everybody gets ideas from wherever they get them from, and every, everybody's different. I mean, ideas can pop into your head, or you see something that sparks something. I mean, it, it does seem to be very individual. I, I recommend people, as I was saying earlier, I mean, I try to have an understanding of their own creative process. And uh, uh, if I have a motto that describes mine, mine is uh, look for the second right answer. Uh, I think a lot of our education uh, emphasizes looking for the one right answer. You think of all the tests you take going through school uh, where 
there's multiple choice and there's one answer that's correct. Uh, that approach is fine for certain mathematical problems, maybe even some technical problems, but I think most of the, uh, the problems and issues we uh, deal with in life have a lot of right answers. But if you stop with the first right answer you find, all the good alternatives will uh, atrophy. So the motto I've had in my, in my life and in my business and what I recommend um, in my book, A Whack in the Side of the Head, and uh, when I'm doing seminars is, uh, if you can, look for the second right answer. Um, the same thing's true when you're manipulating ideas. You know, say, well, I've got this. What can I add to it? What can I take away? What can I reverse? Um, by looking for the second right answer when I'm evaluating ideas, my typical um, uh, way of evaluating ideas is to say what's wrong with them. And if I say this, what's the second way of approaching this, I'll say, uh, hey, uh, what other problems does this solve? What are the unintended consequences of this idea? And when I'm implementing ideas, uh, you know, not everything you try is going to get out there. Uh, uh, it's going to work, and so you have to say, well, what's another approach to make this happen? So. Uh, I think one of the key elements of creative thinking and creative doing is look for the second right answer. What do you say to people, and I'm sure they say this to you, yeah, I'm, I'm just not the creative type. Uh, if you've got that mindset, uh, that's probably true. I think that uh, uh, in, in a whack in the side of the head, I talk about uh, 10 mental locks that prevent people from being more innovative, such attitudes as you always need to follow the rules or play as frivolous or to err is wrong, or uh, one we've been talking about, uh, there's one right answer. Uh, these ideas make sense for a lot of what we do, but when we're trying to uh, generate, generate ideas, they get in the way. And the one mental lock that I think is probably most important that uh, uh, short-circuits people's creativity is the belief, I'm not creative. And you know, if, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, if, if you don't think you're creative, you're not going to put yourself in situations where you can take a few chances or maybe be a little crazy or ask what-if questions or be unsure of the outcome. You know, if you don't think you're creative, um, you're not going to try a lot of different things. Uh, so I, I think, you know, the key thing is, uh, you know, to develop that mindset. And uh, some people think, the only creative people are people like uh, Einstein and Beethoven and Steve Jobs, you know, these super luminaries of the creative firmament. And, you know, they've had big ideas, but most of the time they didn't get these big ideas out of the blue. They got them from paying attention to their medium-sized ideas and manipulating them and turning them into something bigger. And the same thing goes for these, these uh, medium-sized ideas. They didn't come out of the blue. Uh, most of the time they came from just small ideas that they had or they paid attention to that other people had, and then they... They said, okay, maybe there's something here. Let's, um, let's try it. Let's uh, play with it, see where it leads. And probably 95% of the time, they don't lead anywhere. Uh, but sometimes they turn into something bigger. But if, you don't ha it, but if you have the mindset, I'm not creative, you're never going to get there. So that's probably the most damaging of all the mental locks that get in the way. When I hear discussions about creativity and innovation, you don't often hear people talk about the problems along the way that, you know, we talk about how to be creative. Well, okay, great. But so you're being creative and you're in your creative process and you're developing your idea and you get stuck. You're just, you're there, but you're stuck. So what do you do? Wow. Uh, well, I'll tell you what works for me. I love using humor as a way of uh, stimulating my, my creative thinking. And I often find I get stuck when I'm getting too serious on something, whether it's on product design or writing or dealing with a client. And so I found over the years that uh, there's a, a great um, relationship between the ha-ha of humor 
and the aha of uh, creative discovery. And I found that if you can laugh at a problem or a management structure or an advertiser or whatever, it uh, frees your thinking up from a lot of deeply embedded assumptions. And you know, one thing I love doing with my clients, especially in my longer seminars, is have, have them make up offbeat and irreverent mottos for their products or organizations as a way of uh, opening their thinking. And I'll give you a couple examples. I'd uh, le- love to share these with you. Um, for example, I worked with a group of vice presidents at Bank of America, and I said, make up an offbeat and irreverent motto for Bank of America. And their motto for B of A was, uh, Bank of America, where you're not alone until you want a loan. Or uh, IBM, I did the same exercise, and their offbeat motto for IBM was um, IBM, where creative people meet and meet and meet. Or Microsoft, we're arrogant and we should be. Or uh, General Mills, their their offbeat motto was uh, where innovation is acceptable just as long as it's been tried before. And I find that when companies do this, um, if you can laugh at yourself, you're not quite so tied up in your current position, the place where you're stuck. And it gives you a little more flexibility to say, well, is there another right answer? Is there a third right answer? Is there a fifth right answer? And uh, so that's that's one thing I'd recommend. Um, the other thing I found is that over the years, typically when I've been stuck on things, that's because I've been in love with the approach I've had, you know, in dealing with the problem. And I, I found that uh, um, probably one of the best pieces of advice I got um, in business was about 30 years ago when I was um, just starting out. And I asked a lot of people, you know, what does it take to be a success in business? And um, the best advice I got came from my printer who said, Roger, if you want to be um, successful in business, don't fall in love with type styles. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I've seen a lot of designers fall in love with a particular font um, and use it in places again and again, over and over, even in places where it's uh, inappropriate. And, uh, well, I didn't listen to him, but pretty soon I fell in love with Palatino Semi-Bold, and I started using that font everywhere. And after a while, my design looked schlocky and unimaginative. And I've been able to generalize uh, this man's advice to the idea, don't fall in love with ideas, because... As soon as you fall in love with one approach, you want to use it everywhere, even in places where it's not appropriate. So uh, in my own case, I've found that, uh, you know, if I, in my writing, for example, if I've been in love with a particular example or a particular, particular metaphor or quote, uh, if I let go of that, everything tends to flow from there. So I would say, you know, um, you know find out what you're in love with in your current idea or your current situation. And if you can allow yourself to let go of that, uh, imagine your ideas will flow a little bit more freely. You know, I remember reading your book several years ago, A Whack on the Side of the Head. And, and I've used, over the years, I've used a lot of the things you say. Not, not everything, because I, I do think that, you know, creativity is very individual, and sometimes some things work for some people and some things don't. But, but really, you, you clearly have studied this a long time and, and have a really good sense of what it means and what it takes to be creative. So, so thanks. Roger Von Eck has been my guest. He is author of the book, A Whack on the Side of the Head, and his website is creativethink.com, creativethink.com. There's a link to his book in the show notes. Have you ever wondered why retail prices still end in 99 cents? I mean, do retailers still think that we don't know that $59.99 is closer to 60 than 50 Well, it turns out that pricing strategy still does work on us. Economist Tim Hartford described something called the left digit effect. 
And that's the theory that we as consumers really can't be bothered to read the whole price. We see that five at the front of $59.99 and we think 50, not 60. And that's exactly why retail stores still price things that way. But it gets more interesting. Two professors of marketing conducted experiments and found that different prices are evaluated in different ways. For instance, consumers are more inclined to buy luxury or recreational products if they have prices that are rounded to the nearest dollar. So consumers prefer a $40 bottle of champagne rather than a bottle priced at $39.72. However, for purchases that are more utilitarian, like a calculator, participants in the study were more likely to buy at higher non-rounded prices, like $29.99 instead of $30. In another experiment, Participants were told that a camera was purchased for either leisure, like for a vacation, or for a class project. And the participants preferred rounded prices when it was for a vacation, but non-rounded prices when the camera was for a class project. And that is something you should know. If you haven't yet, I I need you to leave a rating and review of this podcast on iTunes or or wherever you listen to the podcast, Google Play or TuneIn or Stitcher. On iTunes, we're trying to get to a thousand ratings and reviews, and, and maybe you'll put us right over the top. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.